Thanks for tuning in to today's podcast. Please remember that all of the information in this podcast episode is limited to general information only. That means the information is not specific to you, your needs, goals, or objectives. So you should seek the advice of a licensed and trusted financial professional before acting on the information. And before you acquire or apply for a financial product, please read the PDS or product disclosure statement, which should be available on the issuer's website. Lastly, please keep in mind that past performance is not indicative of future performance. Janish, as always, mate, thanks for taking the time to join me on the podcast. No, Owen, it's, um, it's good to speak. Today, we're talking getting protection in a crisis. So how people go about using ETFs in particular uh, to get protection when stock markets are volatile. And when we say volatile, I mean highly volatile. And this is, I guess, for you, it's, it's, a, it's a convenient timing to talk about this because um, in the last year, you've launched the, the ultra long and ultra short products. But also, it's just one of those things where it's kind of fresh in the memory for investors who lived through COVID last year in terms of that rapid market, I guess, crash, you could call it, even though it bounced back pretty quick. And they were either left without protection in the short term and they didn't then scrambled to find that protection. Or when it rebounded, they didn't know how to get that kind of that risk on piece back on very quickly. So I think this is an interesting conversation. But before we get to kind of the ultras, what I'm actually hoping we can talk about is basically just like portfolio construction, just quickly, how people, how advisors, because I know you speak to a lot of advisors, how advisors think about portfolio construction with regard to risk. Like what are the metrics that people are looking at when they think about constructing a portfolio that's kind of like all weather, um, but making sure that it's got those risk management protocols in place? Yeah, definitely. So I think uh, a key point here is that the foundation of portfolio construction is diversification. So what we tend to talk to clients about in majority, if not all financial professional clients that we speak with, so that's from your private wealth clients, private wealth advisors, stockbrokers, financial planners, institutional, they are all looking at portfolios to create a diversified portfolio. So that's diversified across asset classes. So the mix of equities, fixed income or bonds, alternative assets, things like gold, cash, to then also diversify within those asset classes. So within equities, for example, not just looking at Australian equities, looking at global equities as well, not just looking at one sector. And then breaking it down even further within, say, Australian equities, not just looking at one stock, looking across a various number of names. What you generally find is they are trying to find the optimal mix between those and whether you subscribe to sort of the 60-40 split in terms of, you know, 60% equities, 40% fixed income in terms of a balanced portfolio or a 50-50 split, you know, depending upon who you want to speak to, there is this notion that a sound and solid portfolio will be diversified across asset classes and across sectors, regions, and stocks. Mm. Just to go on from that, Ganesh, it's just those fundamentals are actually important, but they it's often, you know, the case that everyone's a high risk investor until a market crash. You know, everyone's happy to go hundred percent diversified and you know, all equity portfolio. And then things start to, to get a little bit tense um, and bad decisions are made. I know from experience talking to advisors and, and managers that obviously the 60-40 portfolio is kind of the bedrock of most academic studies and it's kind of what everyone goes back to being 40% kind of risk off. I've chatted on the in the past before with um, the guys at Waddle Partners about this and how they kind of bucket the risk off um, part of their portfolio. 
you know, dividing that up into like alts, you know, defensive alts and just pure defensive assets. And we know that bonds have often been a kind of a safe haven for capital over a very long time, a long term. But that's because interest rates are typically higher and bank central banks could ease monetary policy in times of crisis, which would then drive up the prices of bonds. And you get that negative or that inverse correlation, which you're looking for in portfolio construction, which is basically two things not moving in the same direction at the same time. But, you know, here at Rask, we actually um, we made a decision to move out of the bond ETF that we had allocated to around about oh, just over 18 months ago, a year ago, 18 months ago, recording this in June 2021, because duration risk I found was becoming a bit of an issue. There wasn't much more interest rates could do without becoming an issue. And now if we fast forward a bit to 2021, inflation is on, on the agenda. You know, um, It is the, the topic that all financial professionals seem to be talking about right now and advisors are answering questions about how, how we're going to protect your portfolio during you know, an inflationary environment. Um, in the US, there was a pretty strong print on inflation in the month of April 2021, uh, which is quite interesting. And I know we, we chatted off air just briefly before about people still allocating to gold, you know, cryptos on the scene and people are thinking about that. Normally, a store of value actually maintains its value during crisis. Um, so, there's some debate there. But in terms of gold, we've talked about this before, mate. If people still, you know, putting money into that, even in an inflationary environment? Yeah. So, it, coming back to your point on um, sort of the traditional relationship between equities and bonds, Generally, the correlation between those two is inverse. One goes up, the other one went down. What we found last year and what was happening was the correlation between equities and bonds was actually getting closer and closer. So they were becoming closely tied with each other. So we had a lot of financial professional clients start to look at gold if they weren't already looking at gold as one, gold is your portfolio insurance. So if you insure your car because you don't want it to get stolen, you insure your house in case it has a fire, why wouldn't you insure your portfolio? And gold for us is the the purest portfolio insurance. It generally has been uncorrelated to both equities and fixed income. Um, so it moves away. So when markets go up, generally, we've seen gold move down, you know, or when markets move down, gold has traditionally, it's been a positive performer in a historical sense. We found gold was a very useful diversifier win portfolios to diversify away from one the market risk. So it's an it's an equity um, it's an equity hedge in terms of the volatility, but also you're talking about inflation. So gold is an inflation hedge. So right now we're seeing a bit of a rally in the gold price. More recently, one reason could be attributable to being the fact that we're starting to see a pickup in inflation expectations. You know, there's been this big sort of stimulus spendings from um, big reserve banks around the world because of COVID. It's also a bit of a, an, a unique time that we've had. You know, it's very hard to look back in history and say, how will assets perform? Because we haven't been in a situation where interest rates have been so low. You've had a pandemic, which has forced federal reserves like the central bank in the US to basically print money stimulate the economy by basically handing out benefits and, and just going sort of continually handing out and creating stimulus packages. It's been a bit of a weird scenario, but what we're finding is gold has a place in a portfolio as a strategic allocation. And we've started to see a lot of investors use it. You know, even as we talk about in June, over the course of 2020, we had about $800 million of net inflows into our gold ETF, GOLD. A lot of that 
were strategic buying um, to implement within their portfolio as a, as a defensive allocation. So you're saying that people are buying that to hold it permanently. So two to four percent of say two to five percent of a portfolio rather than in the past where they might have kind of used it as a risk off tool, tool as a tilt. Exactly right. Yep. That, that, that's what we are seeing. And what we do talk to clients about is make sure you rebound. So the holdings, you know, your your gains in gold, if if gold if your gold allocation has gone up, make sure you rebalance your portfolio and sell down that position to reflect the weight in which you would like to have as a as a true portfolio insurance. You know, don't be afraid to do that. That's the only way you can realize the gain that, that gold has had as a result. You know, speaking with you in a simplistic sense, you want gold within your portfolio to gather dust. You want it to do nothing. That means the rest of your portfolio is doing something and is doing well. If gold is truly what's providing you know, the majority of your returns within your portfolio, well, then it's doing its job as the insurance within your portfolio, as the hedge to you know, equity market risk or as a hedge to inflation. Hmm. Do you find that if we think of like, we're not predicting inflation or interest rates to go up or whatever, but if you think about an inflationary environment, are you surprised that more people are using gold? Or are you thinking that it's, there's actually some risk-off dollars that are coming out of you know other defensive asset buckets that might be now going shifting into gold? So maintaining that overall SAA, but now just tilting directly into gold. So I think it's a combination. We find people allocating to it from a strategic perspective, but also people looking and going, well, I can hold my money in cash, but cash isn't giving me anything. I can look at fixed income, but interest rates are sort of at the lowest of lows. With inflation rising on a relative yield basis, then gold is actually going to give me something. And that's why I'd like to have some allocation to it as well. So you have a combination of the two um, in that respect. What I have seen is Australian investors and the Australian market. So the ETF we're talking about, GOLD, it was the world's first physically backed gold product launched in 2003. But globally, the usage of gold has been much more advanced in the US and in Europe. They've understood how to use gold in a portfolio far before Australian investors have. We've only started to really understand the true use of gold in the portfolio. And I'm talking from a sort of institutional financial professional perspective. There was always this big pushback in terms of, well, I don't need that because I get my gold mining exposure. I've got Newcrest or... I've got a gold mining equity ETF or whatever it may be. Two different things. You know, you're comparing apples to oranges when you're comparing physical gold as a defensive alternative to a gold mining stock. A gold mining stock is dependent upon that particular gold miner and its operations of the mining operations of its board, of its um, management of the company, a whole heap of other sort of different factors that drive the price of that particular stock. Gold is very much very simplistic it's the safe haven asset. It's, you know, this, it's the yellow metal. It's, it's there. It's historically always been seen as one of the safest forms of currency. And so that's why we're starting to see a bit more understanding in Australia anyway. And I know the ETF security team has done a lot of work over the past three, four years to try to just educate clients around the ways in which gold can be used in the portfolio. As you mentioned, can be used as a tactical, as an event head risk. You know, we've seen that happen, you know, during the dot-com crisis or, you know, particular conflicts, geopolitical conflicts, we've seen gold has in the months post those events has been positive in performance relative to broader markets. But as a strategic allocation, there is a space for it to be had within a portfolio. 
Mm. I know you talk about gold a lot, mate. So we're going to move away from that because we, and we've spoken about this in the past. So if you want to go back and listen to Kinish and I talk about gold and some of the kind of the devil's advocates um, discussion there, that, that would be a good one to go to. But you talked about event, event hedge effectively in, and, and you talked about gold being physically backed, which is, which is important, I think, for that. But there's another, you know, emerging class of ETFs in particular. Um, which use synthetic exposure. So what do we mean by synthetic? Typically, we mean derivatives. So getting exposure to markets in a way that can go long or short using contracts, typically futures contracts is what we're talking about. So many people in Australia will be familiar with the bear range of ETFs, which are those that kind of move in the opposite direction. If we just make it overly simplistic, it's move in the opposite direction, typically of stock markets. So the ASX 200 or, um, you know, the S&P 500. In this case, we're talking about um, the NASDAQ because you guys are, at ECF Securities have, have launched two products. One is going ultra long, one is going ultra short. Why don't we start with ultra short? Because that's on the thematic of, you know, using a, a very short term active tilt in the portfolio for protection. So... I'll, maybe I'll start with like effectively what shorting is. So shorting is effectively protecting part or all of your portfolio, depending on how you go about it, during a, a market crash. And typically, you use shorting um, if you're not an active short seller. A short seller is typically someone that goes out and targets companies that are low quality and tries to make money from their fall, um, whatever the case may be. There's some great short sellers out there. But the other way you can use shorting is effectively to take a position in an instrument that you believe will perform um, poorly and that might protect you. And then if you can inverse that, you're effectively, you're benefiting from that. So can you explain SNAS? So that's the ticker code, SNAS, I think you would probably pronounce it, meaning NASDAQ and the S standing for short. Can you explain what it does and how it works? Yeah, so SNAS or SNAS, as sometimes we refer to it in the office, it's the ETF Securities Ultra Short NASDAQ 100 Hedge Fund. Think of it like a mirror. So the idea for that particular fund is to provide a, an investor a trading tool to receive the negative relationship to the NASDAQ 100. So for every 1% move in the NASDAQ 100, this particular fund is expected to return between 2 to 2.75% in the opposite direction. So it's a short view on the NASDAQ 100. So if, in theory, if it, was a, if it had a leverage of one times, then if the NASDAQ on one day went up by 1%, this fund would go down by 1%. So it's a complete mirror in that respect. But now we apply the magnifying glass on that mirror and because we've got leverage within it. So we've geared it up essentially to between 2 to 2.75 times. So now we've got an ability for, as I said, if for a 1% move, then this fund returns 2 to 2.75 times in the opposite direction. So that's the range of leverage between 2 to 2.75 times that this fund has to maintain within, and that's the active element. So that's what us at ETF Securities as a business, that's what our portfolio management team are actively ensuring that the fund has that range between 2 to 2.75 times leverage. Once it gets to the, the upper limits of that, we essentially will rebalance it to making sure that it sits within that range. Okay. So people are probably thinking, okay, so this is a short product and how do I make money from it? The NASDAQ typically goes up over the long term 
you know, we, we're, you and I are very keen to emphasize that this is a short-term, i.e. trading instrument, meaning that this isn't the type of product that you put in your bottom drawer and forget about it. That would be probably a very, I'm going to say just generally speaking, that would probably be a very bad decision. What we're talking about here is applying short-term exposures to markets, and in this case, geared, so you're getting more than one-to-one um, exposure. So, I'm just if I'm reversing that logic a bit, then Kinish, I would say that if I was seeing the NASDAQ fall and I thought it was going to keep falling, I might buy this ETF because that would then go in the opposite direction. That's right. You know, that's the, that's the idea, right? Exactly right. Yeah. So that, that's, that's the idea. So the idea is that so we saw a lot of use of short and short leveraged um, funds during uh, sort of the period post COVID 19 when we had a lot of that market volatility. There was a bit of uncertainty around where markets were going. They were trending downwards. Investors were saying, well, if I were to buy those short leveraged funds, it would give me, I'd, I'd be basically, I'd be capturing, um, I'd be outperforming the market because I'm basically betting on the market to go down. It is a trading tool. If you are of the view that the market's going to go down, then this could be a fund that would give you some benefit within your portfolio. But keep in mind that, if you were to hold this, for example, and again, please speak to a financial professional when, when looking to make any investments, but in particular with, with these sorts of tools, if you were to hold this for a period of one year and the NASDAQ fell by 10% and the average level of leverage that this fund had was two times, this fund would not give you 20% returns. That's not how it works because between that over that 12 month period the daily moves up and down up and down your price point your fund is moving accordingly so it's not at a from point a to point b or point z sorry point a to point z it's in between that what happens each day which is why we say it's not going to be a, an exact you know 20 percent up it may be up 10 15 maybe even down and maybe neutral who knows depending upon what happens each day so Day one, an example that I'm going to, if I broke it down really sort of basically, if we were to say you hold $10 in SNAS and the market went down by 10%. So that means, and the leverage on the fund was 2.5 times within the fund on that day. That means that your exposure is now $12.50 because the market's gone down 10% on one day and it's 2.5 times that in the opposite direction. So you've actually gone from $10 to $12.50. Now on that day, then so the next day you're sitting at $12.50, the market goes up by 10%. So now $12.50, your leverage, let's still call it, let's call it two times now because leverage is, as I mentioned, leverage changes. So now the leverage has changed to two times. So the market's gone up by 10%. You're now sitting on a move down of $12.50, but it's actually a 20% move down from $12.50. So you're now below potentially that $10 mark that you were originally at. So you sort of sit there and need to understand it is a short-term trading tool. It's for investors that have a particular view on where the markets are going to trend, which is why we've got both options. We've got the long and the short, both have the same level of leverage in terms of can be between two to 2.75 times. But both are run separately in terms of that leverage, but it is a trading tool. The other way we see the short fund being used is as a hedge to an existing portfolio. So what we actually saw um, when people are expecting some volatility 
And you know, for this one, it's looking at the NASDAQ 100 and it's providing, providing that magnifying glass or the mirror on the NASDAQ 100. For people that have exposure to tech names or the NASDAQ 100 or sort of the FANG style stocks, they may want to hedge out some of their position in lieu of some of the volatility that they may perceive coming. So they may use this to hedge out some of that position. So rather than selling down their existing positions in their technology stocks or tech exposures, they may use this as a hedge to those positions. Yeah, so you can you can turn it on rather than pulling stuff off. You can turn it on. It's like getting, I guess, a, a player on the field that goes the opposite direction to the other players is to be sure. Yeah, it's a really interesting one because during COVID, a lot of people were asking um, when they bought into those bear funds, which typically move one-to-one, typically, not always, but typically move on to one. They're wondering like, why am I up a certain amount that doesn't make sense when the market's down 10%, I'm up you know, this amount. And can you, so can you describe it just if someone's thinking, actually, how does this actually work behind the scenes? So I guess, how do you using derivatives, like what are you actually doing to get your investors this exposure? Yeah. So it's, it's very simple. We're simply buying, we're either shorting the futures or we're going long on the futures. So we're purchasing more futures contracts and we're applying leverage on them. So some contracts within that. So it's, it's weird, I guess, from our perspective, we're managing that side. So the internal structure of how it's operating. From an investor's perspective, we remove that risk. The other thing to consider is we're actually currency hedge, currency hedging both of these exposures because essentially if these are trading tools to provide either the magnifying glass or the mirror on the NASDAQ 100, you don't want currency to play a part in that. So there's actually a currency hedge as well for both of these exposures. Yeah, right. And so as an ETF provider, does that cost you more to do the currency hedge and to offer a product like this? Like, is I feel like it would. Yeah, it does. Yeah. So there, there is an, an increased cost with any currency hedge exposures um, versus not hedging a fund, just in terms of the operational, the transactional elements that, that go into managing the currency exposures. Um, so yes, they'll, they'll always be a little bit higher. These are from a leveraged and a short and leveraged play charging 1% per annum. So both of the funds are the long NASDAQ 100 hedge fund, LNAS or LNAS, and the short NASDAQ 100 hedge fund, SNAS, are both charging 1% in terms of its fee. Yeah, you definitely don't want to get those two confused if you're uh, if you're weighing up both of them because they do not do the same thing. In terms of then futures, is there any risk, Kinesh, like during a market dislocation, is there any risk about liquidity and the underlying assets so in the futures themselves? So for us, they're not too much risk, especially with the NASDAQ 100 futures. Um, so we're using sort of from that perspective, it's not, you know, we're not trading a, a lightly traded futures market. I think that's where you may have greater risk. You know, the NASDAQ 100 futures are, is one of the biggest futures um, sort of backed product in the market. So, you know, we're fairly comfortable with that perspective. The other thing from an investor perspective is, the most sophisticated investors may already be doing this. They may already be going long, taking margin, you know, using margin loans, taking short positions on on futures um, themselves using CFDs. The potential upside or benefit of using sort of these types of ETFs, if they're used properly, is the most an investor can lose is the money that they invest. So they'll never receive a call on the margin call or anything like that, where they have to sort of put in more money to maintain positions, etc. So Yes, they have a potential to lose their capital that they invest in these funds in the unlikely scenario, but you know that the market moves more than 50% in one day, well, then there's a potential. Within these NASDAQ 100 
sort of uh, leverage products. We haven't seen that occur even for overseas exposures. We've seen that happen with these types of funds when they've been trying to get exposure to the VIX, for example, so the volatility index and things like that, where they can move quite significantly or where for some of those funds, especially in the US, you have sort of four times leverage, five times leverage. You can get some pretty exotic funds. Here in Australia, they're very much you know, a bit more, a bit more stable, uh, a bit more well thought out and sound in terms of their structure, especially from the regulator standpoint, we're very much trying to ensure that these aren't funds where, you know, we're not looking to obtain excessive leverage within them. Yeah. Yeah. Is it, is it, I mean, if you go on some of the big US ETF websites, you'll see that there are many, many different types of things you can go long or short with gearing on. Yeah. Right. Okay. So these are particular products that, you know, we're exercising caution around just kind of bringing it, them to your awareness so you can go about it and speak to your advisor and do some extra work. Uh, there was one more question, but it's kind of slipped my mind now, mate. I can't remember what it was. Oh, yeah, it's around CFDs. Maybe not so much a, a question, more a point. Like we don't advocate for CFDs at Rask. Um, there's a reason that they're the biggest marketers in terms of um, what you see to retail investors. And I think they're just contracts for wealth destruction um, in terms of they're just so bloody risky for people. Some of the horror stories that we hear of, people getting into air quotes trading for the first time going long or short with cfds is just very very scary and it's kind of heartbreaking to be honest to hear them so my point is basically i understand why these are superior products for the majority of investors not necessarily looking to take stock specific short exposure or long ultra long exposure but broad market exposure and how that that's why we talked about the portfolio construction piece right like to tie that in with that kind of overarching long-term strategy and 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 positioning etc Kanish, if people wanted to find out more information about these products or even gld or any of the other etfs you've got where can they go uh so etfsecurities.com.au we've got a, a raft of information on, on the the short nasdaq 100 hedge fund the long nasdaq 100 hedge fund uh our gold product and a, and a number of others we've also got on there and i do recommend people do this is read the product disclosure statements you know read the fact sheets you know really and if necessary call us up uh, we're happy to you know our team at etf securities we're happy to answer questions on the funds we can't provide any advice um, but we can talk to the funds themselves we can talk to how they're constructed and and what they're in, in sort of how they've been designed and trying to just ensure people as i said you know you talked about the portfolio construction piece these to um, LNAS and SNAS, they are trading tools. They are not designed to be long-term holdings. They are designed purely as trading tools to allow investors to trade their conviction in the market. Yep. That's well said, mate. So always exercise caution, read the PDS, speak to your financial advisors, etc. Kanish Chog from ETF Securities. Mate, always a pleasure to have you on the show. Thanks for chatting with me. No, thanks for having me on.